Good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 today. Let me just say I'm excited to be here this morning. Someone said earlier they didn't know exactly what an interim pastor is. I'm the guy between the guy you had last and the guy you're going to have next. I'll be here every Sunday, God willing, and you're remaining to be pleased, and God remaining to be pleased in what we're doing here, and uh, hopefully as the committee continues to work, we'll get closer and closer to that time when we, we know the guy that God already knows out there. He's already got him selected, but I'm happy to be here. In the meantime, I hope you're glad to be here this morning as well. As we begin to look at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of the things I want us to understand is how the sermon fits together from front to end, how the Beatitudes are linked and the remainder of the teaching is, is linked uh, together. So to that end, uh, this morning I'm going to begin our time together by sharing uh, the sermon with you. So if you just want to follow along with me, uh, you can do that. And I'm not going to ask you to stand during this time because it is it takes about 14 or 15 minutes to do this. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people persecute you, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, 
and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rach, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more, more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets in the synagogues and on the streets to be seen by men, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they... Love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, 
go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than clothes, and the body more, more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, 
Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, from thorn bushes or figs, from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, so many of these words, this passage is just so familiar to us. I pray this morning that you would speak a fresh word to, it, to us, that you would help us to understand exactly what you're saying there and take it to heart, Father, to obey it, to share it, to live it. Speak through me, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Touch the hearts of your people that they may be edified and that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Many have suggested that happiness is the great question or the great pursuit that mankind faces. And in our own experience, we know how we've longed for happiness. People we have known, friends and family, we've seen them long for happiness. And certainly as we've surveyed our culture, we've seen how people long for happiness. And it's sad, really, to see the lengths to which people will go to try to find happiness, the things they'll sacrifice to try to find happiness. Most folks are, are busy just trying to avoid the difficulties that are, that are common to all of us, that are unavoidable. And inevitably, all that effort only serves to add to their mystery. 
And here's where the deceit of sin comes in. Sin gives the appearance, we know this full well, of offering happiness, at least an escape from pain and grief, but in the end, we know it only yields unhappiness and, and great regret. The Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the Beatitudes, says that if you really want happiness, here's the way. These and these alone are the characteristics of a, a type of person who's truly happy, who's truly blessed. They're listening on the top of that mountain to Jesus teaching. The crowds would have no doubt, no doubt been, been shocked by much of what Jesus had to say for, for for, for them to, to say that someone was blessed, you see, was the same as offering that person congratulations. And then they hear Jesus saying, these are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Congratulations. Happy are you. It must have sounded too good to be true. These attitudes and, and actions which Jesus told them and, and us would resulted in them being blessed and them being happy were and are so distinctly different from the way the world operates. Here's just a quick overview. First of all, the rewards are incomparable. You can't put the magnificent, everlasting, all-sufficient blessings of the kingdom of God side by side with the insignificant, worldly prize offered by high-paying jobs or second homes or elaborate vacations or Powerball or the casino or anything else. The rewards are incomparable. Second, Jesus proclaims His good news with no terms or conditions hidden in the small print. Whoever possesses the qualities, poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry, thirsty for righteousness, merciful, they're declared blessed. By the way, something we need to understand here, and you probably are aware of this, but these are not eight separate and distinct groups of disciples, okay? Some of whom are poor in spirit, some of whom mourn, some of whom are merciful, some are... It's not like that, okay? These are eight qualities of the, of the same group who at least in the ideal and at some time are meek and merciful, poor in spirit and pure in heart, mourning and hungry, peacemaker and persecuted. Also understand that these are also not the marks of some super group of saints, okay? Some super group of, of disciples who just really have it all together spiritually. No, the, the Beatitudes are Christ's own design of what every Christian ought to be. All these qualities are to characterize us all Christians, to some degree. And also understand that, that none of these descriptions are what we would call a natural tendency, okay? E each one of them is a trait, they're a, a disposition, which is produced entirely by grace alone when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. All Christians are to be like all of these, and if they are, Jesus says, then they're blessed. But the most significant distinction is that Jesus' announcement is not a, a ploy to focus your attention on some unattainable, elusive, pie-in-the-sky dream. The, the happiness His good news produces will not diminishes when all the truth comes out. Because the good news of Jesus is proclaiming a new truth. The sovereignty of Almighty God is spreading abroad across the face of the earth through the ministry and the message of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. 
the creator of heaven and earth, the God over all the kingdoms of the earth, the king of glory and the most high is making a bold, grace-filled proclamation to all the world that things are never going to be the same again going forward. Never again going to be the same again because each of the Beatitudes spells out an essential, fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. This is not just a, a description, you see, of what a man or a woman of faith does. The real point, the life-altering reality, is that it is a stark difference between what the Christian, as compared to the non-Christian, is. The New Testament teaches us here something that is absolutely fundamental with regard to the Christian faith. And I would suggest it's a major priority for the church as to have a clear understanding of this fundamental difference. Beloved, we've got to be honest about it and say that distinction, that difference has become blurred. The world has come into the church to varying degrees and the church has become more and more worldly. The line is not as distinct as it once was. There were times when the distinction was more clear-cut. And those have always been the greatest eras in church history. For instance, we've been told that we have to make the church attractive to the people outside, and the idea is that when they come, they'll be comfortable because it'll look more like what they're used to. It'll sound more like what they're used to. They won't be offended. Beloved, that is a flawed, unbiblical philosophy that will not ultimately work. It's an, it's an approach that is devoid of the power to actually transform people's lives. Because, beloved, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross is an offense to those who have yet to surrender to Jesus Christ. The enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. They are alienated from God, living in enmity toward Him as we once were. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is uniquely different from the world, that is when she is the most attractional. It's then that the, the world is drawn to her message, and sure, yes, they're going to resist, and they're going to chafe under the convicting power of that message at first, but that's how revival comes. Beloved, this must also be true of us individually. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, although we're Christians, but to be as different from everybody who's not a Christian as we possibly can be. Our ambition, you see, should be to be more like Christ, and the more like Him, the better. And the more like Him we become, the more, like, the more we'll be unlike everyone who's not a Christian. This is the truth. This is the new reality that Jesus taught on that mountain that teaches to us today. This is your reality, beloved. This is my reality. Before we get into the Beatitudes and, and, and examine them individually, we, we need to understand this important characteristic about them. As announcements of congratulations, many of the Beatitudes are diametrically opposed to what the world believes and teaches and how it operates. They don't echo the prevailing wisdom of our culture, which puts earthly wealth and its accumulation of things at the top of life's priorities. Jesus, in effect, says, happy are those the world considers unhappy. 
The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the persecuted are not normally looked upon as blessed. In fact, most of our world and the world in Jesus' day would view them as the unfortunate ones. I mean, we want to be around winners, right? And, and we want to be winners ourselves. We say the winners are, are, are the wealthy and, and the ones who are blessed. The wealthy are the ones that are blessed. And, and we can spot a winner by the way they carry themselves, by the clothes they wear, by the car they drive, by the home in which they live, by their collection of the latest and greatest gadgets. M many people spend their entire existence on this earth striving to reach this blessed level of spiritual prosperity, uh, excuse me, of material prosperity. And, and, and then it's little wonder that so many of our children revere and seek to emulate not the pure in heart, not the peacemakers, not the meek, not the merciful, not the persecuted, but the wealthy, the well-known, and the ones the world labels winners. But Jesus says, wait a minute. He raises up folks that our culture says are losers and lets them know that they should be fully aware of a great blessing. And listen, he doesn't remove the reality of suffering. He pronounces them blessed in the midst of their suffering. So regardless of how dark the day, these are folks who will and, and, are, and now are experiencing divine blessing. And of course, that's the only kind of blessedness that counts for anything. The world would tell us that the way up is up, which on the surface sounds pretty logical, right? But the wisdom of the Bible turns this prevailing philosophy upside down. Biblical wisdom reveals that, in fact, the way up is really down. That sounds illogical. That sounds crazy, even. Of course, you and I know that the Bible is full of paradoxes that seem to be irreconcilable. Jesus says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life <clears throat> will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So those kinds of statements clash wildly with conventional wisdom. But the difficulty with conventional wisdom is that it's not very wise. Biblical wisdom is genuine wisdom. And it's not only wise, it's true. It possesses alone transforming power for your life. And this transformative, powerful wisdom is the substance of the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to repeat a question, one that I asked last Sunday and one that I've had to ask and answer myself, and that is this. Are you willing to really listen? Are you willing to really listen and obey what Jesus has to say to you in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you are, if that's where you're at today, if you're serious about the wisdom of the Word, allowing the wisdom of the Word to transform your life, then hang on, because this is going to be a quite a ride. The first thing we see is our need. The first thing that Jesus said was so shockingly profound that I don't think it's an, a, an overstatement to say that if it, was, if it was correctly understood and applied by everyone, it could transform the basic nature of human civilization. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what a radical thing for Jesus to say. And if he wanted to get their attention early on, he, he had done it. The poor in spirit, blessed, Poverty of spirit is something to stay away from, not, not a good thing. 
much less the thing that brings blessing. In other words, Jesus is saying that this quality of being poor in spirit is something that will make us happy. But everyone knows that's not how you get ahead. That's not how you attain happiness. Our, our culture says something like, assert yourself. Nothing or no one matters as much as you matter. The only vice is weakness, so be strong. The world is yours for the taking. Unfortunately, there are some in the church today who, who give at least tacit approval of this philosophy by not faithfully and fully proclaiming the truth of Jesus' view of success. And there are too many prosperity gospel preachers and teachers and writers who hold up this material, materialistic philosophy as the biblical standard of blessing. They're, they're name it and, and claim it brand of, of theology asserts that, that being a disciple of Jesus Christ guarantees material riches, guarantees physical and emotional health, worldly achievement, and happiness. But beloved, this is decidedly not what the Bible teaches about Christianity. There, there is no real consideration of the eternal in that theology, nor can there be. God is simply the means to an end. But God is so much more than that, isn't He, church? And Jesus had so much more in mind than material wealth and worldly achievement and physical health and a, and a happiness with no future. He's revealing to us the way to true and eternal happiness. And the place, he says, to start is to be poor in spirit. So understand this, believer. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of a Christian of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all the other characteristics we're going to look at flow out of this one poor in spirit. We're going to look deeply at this beatitude and, and the ones that follow especially, and we're going to see that this one really means an emptying while the remainder of them are a product of fullness. It's a fundamental truth of the gospel that we can't be filled until we're first empty. So this first beatitude, then, is one of those statements in Scripture which reminds us that there's got to be this kind of emptying before there can be a filling. Think of the disciples. They're fishing in one moment. Jesus says, come follow me. And immediately they left their nets. They left everything they'd ever known and followed him. Think of Jesus' words to the man who desired to, to follow him, but he wanted to go back and bury his father. What did Jesus tell him? Leave the dead to bury their own dead? How about the rich young ruler? Go and sell all that you possess. How about Zacchaeus, right? Yet it's our Lord Jesus who led the way in this idea of emptying. Paul writes in a very familiar passage, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's the emptying. Now comes the lifting up. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on and, and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The emptying comes before the lifting up. 
essential, an essential part of the gospel is that conviction precedes conversion. The gospel of Jesus Christ convicts before it frees. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? First, Jesus is not holding up poverty as something that's a blessing in and of itself. It, it is not. And neither is Jesus suggesting that poverty in and of itself produces superior spiritual strength. The poor in spirit are simply those who live in humble acknowledgement of how much they need God. But the poor in spirit are those who cast themselves on God's grace. As those who are poor in spirit, we recognize and we profess to our Father that we are spiritually bankrupt. To recognize our poverty before God is to understand and admit how desperately we need Him. It's an acknowledgement that we're sinful and, and utterly lacking in and of ourselves the righteousness we need to please and glorify the Father. Jesus declares here that it's a blessing to recognize this need which can only be filled by God's grace. The German common language version translates this, Blessed are those who stand with empty hands before God. This sermon may be called the Sermon on the Mount. It may have been delivered from a mountainside, but those who were there felt very much unlike mountains. They must have. Beloved, God can only pour out His blessings, though, on those who are not too full of themselves. Those, those who come before Him with empty hands. The, the, the poor in, in spirit know that the only good they can hope for in their lives must come from the One who promises to raise up the poor from the dust and lift the needy from the ash heap. Another translation translates verse 3. Blessed are those who know their need of God. Beloved, as those who are poor in spirit, we recognize that we have nothing and we are nothing in and of ourselves. We're keenly aware of our utter dependence upon God. So we've got to see that there's nothing we can do to get in with God. Without Christ, we're spiritually bankrupt. We may have a degree from the finest college, but without Jesus, we are spiritually ignorant. We may have a 401k that's bursting at the seams, but without Him, we are spiritually destitute. We may be the CEO of a major corporation, but without Christ, we might as well be down at the Union Gospel Mission waiting in line for supper. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do a few things. Just seeing if you're awake. Apart from me, you can do what, church? Say nothing. Nothing. That's what being poor in spirit means. We're nothing apart from Christ. To be poor in in spirit is to truly come before God with empty hands, a humble heart, overwhelmed with our need for what He alone can give us. The kind of person God is looking for is described in Isaiah 66, verse 2. But this is the man to whom I will look and have regard. He who is humble and of a broken or wounded spirit and who trembles at my word and reveres my commands. 
So what about you? Have, have you seen this kind of attitude in yourself, the, this poverty of spirit before God? And maybe you're a place in your life where you're just sick and tired of trying to do everything on your own. You know, you know it's possible to try to follow God in your own strength. I, I've been guilty of that. And it's impossible. Have you done that? And have, you, have your efforts to, to follow God been guided by your own wisdom, by your own strength? Because it happens to even the most faithful of us. But when we try to do that, we're going to soon discover, and you've been there, I've been there, that it just doesn't work. Our strength is absolutely insufficient, so we quickly become exhausted even trying to do His glorious work. Our intelligence is insufficient. And in our feeble attempts to figure out God, we subconsciously or maybe consciously, we kind of wind up putting them in a little box. And we do that because it's the only way we can wrap our heads around Him. It's like we've got to bring Him down to our level, reduce Him to our limited understanding. And, and yes, that can make us feel safe, and that can make us feel more in control, but what that actually does is take us out of His guiding grace. What we've actually done is limit what the God of the universe wants to do in and through our lives. And then a sense of duty and responsibility, which are not in and of themselves bad things, but a sense of duty and responsibility, rather than a heart captivated by the love of God, begins to drive our efforts, begins to motivate our efforts to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, to obey Jesus. And it's not long before we're exhausted and we're burnt out and we're beat down and we're dry and we're wondering if there's anything that can quench our thirst again. That's what happens when we try to follow Christ in our own strength. And if we find ourselves there this morning, I want to say to you that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just where we should have begun, right? To be poor in spirit means that we clearly see our inability to make it on our own. When we're ready to admit that God must pour His living water into us or we will forever remain dry and empty, then we're in a place where God can begin to do something with us, through us, and in us. We don't belong anywhere except alongside the tax collector in the temple crying out, O oh Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God as revealed in Scripture. Read this book. This book reveals the Father. Examine it closely. Take to heart what He calls you to be and do in its pages and what our Father expects of His children. Look to Christ as He's revealed in the Gospels. Join with the disciples who, after even witnessing mighty miracles, said, Lord, increase our faith. Look to Jesus. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the more closely we look at Jesus, the more we'll come to, to understand and cry out, He must increase and I must decrease. And that great hymn of our faith, we sang some of it earlier. We didn't sing this, sing this verse. Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Beloved, are you ready to receive what God desperately desires to give to you? I hope you are. For you see, the poor in spirit are those who inherit the kingdom of heaven. So real quickly, as we close. I think I, got a, I left a slide out. Our blessing... Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
if we're willing to acknowledge that spiritual poverty we've been talking about, our spiritual bankruptcy before God, that we're sinners, that we're under the holy wrath of God, that we're deserving nothing but the judgment of God, that we have nothing to offer, nothing to plead, nothing with which to earn the favor of heaven, then, then and only then, are we in a place where we can receive the kingdom from the king. And look at the enormity of the blessings that we receive in the kingdom of heaven. What? A blessing. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote in Colossians 1. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1.4. I guess I skipped that one. There it is. There it is. God has something stored for you, up for you in heaven where it will never decay or be ruined or, in, or disappear. That's our inheritance. That's something. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And spend some time in that section of Scripture, beloved. Lord Jesus Christ tells us in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. I'm, can you try to wrap your mind around this, this blessing, this, this promised blessing? We can't. Paul says we can't even begin to imagine it. But just try to contemplate what it means. It means that God has granted you and me entrance into His kingdom. It means God has made available to you and I kingdom resources. It means we're adopted as sons and daughters into His family. We're children of the King of heaven the King of glory, the Father to the fatherless, the Lord of all the earth, the God most high, God Almighty, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're His children and therefore His heirs. Blessed? You bet we're blessed. God gives the promise of the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit. As we come to Christ with our empty hands, He will fill them with good things. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the Lord who is high and lifted up, He who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a blessing to be together in your house during this time to examine your word and have your word examine us. Father, uh, your word does not return void. So, as your word has been shared, as your son has been lifted up, there have been responses, there have been decisions made, and I pray that each of us will, will indeed respond to the movement of your Holy Spirit in our lives and to, the, to your word and what it reveals to us. I pray, Lord, for those who, who have decisions they need to make and, and your Holy Spirit is touching their hearts and, and drawing them and wooing them. And they, and they need to make a decision for your Son, Jesus Christ, that, that involves salvation or, or baptism or, or church membership, Lord. I pray you'll continue to speak to their hearts and today might be the day of salvation. Today might be the day they share that decision with their brothers and sisters here at Richland Baptist Church. Certainly each of us, Father, can decide that we're going to take up our cross daily 
and follow you. The Lord, acknowledge how poor in spirit we are, but how indeed blessed we are because we're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.